This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder with them to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly slice of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. I'm Janine, Olive's food director and podcast host, and this is episode 176. This week, I welcome author and butcher Jessica Rag onto the podcast. Jess has written a fascinating book all about her journey to becoming one of the few female butchers in the UK. It's a brilliant coming-of-age story mixed with recipes, butchery techniques, and lots of advice on how to buy and eat meat more responsibly. Let's hear what she has to say. Welcome to the podcast, Thank Jessica Rugg. Can I call you Jess? You can, of course you, you can. <laughs> and um, you've written a book called Girl on the Block, a true story of coming of age behind the counter, all about becoming a female butcher. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> it's, it's not just about your journey. There's so much stuff in there. There's techniques for butchering, there's recipes, there's guides to knives, there's tying a butcher's knot, there's stuff about breeds. It really mm. is like a massive, comprehensive Thing about <laughs> like a compendium, about a compendium of <laughs> a meat. Compendium of meat. It's a story in the middle. But I mean, where it all started was 16 years old. You ended up yeah. on a butcher's counter. How did that happen? Oh gosh, I mean, it, it was a complete accident. First start. Um, I was 16 years old, and I needed a Saturday job because all my friends had Saturday jobs, and they yeah. were all going out buying cars, and I was really excited <laughs> um, for them, not for me. Um, and then I went to my local farm shop in Derbyshire, and basically. There were so many different departments. There was the bakeries, the butchers, the fish counter, the shop floor. And they kind of said, where do you want to go? And I just said, I really don't mind. Put me anywhere. And they just put me on the butchers. (laughs) Do you think that was because most people were like, I'll go anywhere, but don't put me near the butchers? (laughs) I think probably. I didn't think I thought about it until I started when I was 16. And I thought actually this is this isn't normal this is a weird thing and I there was all my other friends at the farm shop were like yeah how do you deal with it do you not think it's gross isn't it and like and I kind of 
didn't register at yeah. all until I started. So it was it was a complete happy accident. Yeah. Um, and I just fell in love with it from there, to so be honest. So it's quite a big... I mean, you don't say where it was in your... In, you don't disclose where it was in your book, <laughs> but it sounds like quite a big posh, fancy form shop. It is. Judging by... It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably... I mean, they, they've been around since the... I want to say the 70s. Really? Um, yeah, it was one of the first in Britain. Okay. Um, and basically, they, they, all of the meat came from the estate that they had. It was on a big yeah. country estate, and they all of the venison and the beef and... Cool raise their own poultry. It was a big operation. Yeah. And people used to get dressed up to go there because it was super posh. And it was really? Like a little treat. Oh, God. <laughs> it was the most bizarre working environment, just coming from Clay Cross, where I'm from, and coming in the morning and wearing jeans and having my hair down and, and just looking so gross. And then all of the people who came in were like dolled up to the nines. You never wow. even believe it. So it was a really different experience. And I mean, me. how did those like first few weeks unfold with you in you're in the middle of this completely alien environment? It was it was a strange one to adjust to. Yeah. Um I kind of was really excited by the prospect of it because for me, as a teenage girl who loved makeup, loved clothes, loved fashion, going into an environment where you don't rely on any of that mm. and you just have your hair tied back. And it was so hands-on and yeah. it was so fun. Yeah. It was everything you were doing physical. It was stuff with the knives, you know, even from putting the meat out in the morning to taking it away. It was all physical. And that was so new to me yeah. that I just really enjoyed it. And it wasn't until kind of, I'd say, the second or third week, maybe mm. about a month in, that I actually saw one of the deliveries of whole lambs come in. Oh, okay. And that's when I registered that this, you know, I'd never had to think about butchers before. I was, I'd never really cooked my own meal at that age, but I registered that actually you know, me, oh, oh God, you know, there it is. Yeah. That's where it comes from. And that's it in front of me. And that's me looking right at it. Yeah. Um, and that's when things started to get a little bit more interesting for me because I wanted to find out things and I wanted to learn. And then everything on the counter, I looked at it a little bit differently. Yeah. So it was an interesting one. Um, it was, it was difficult to, to kind of get anyone to show me anything. Yeah, because you say in the book, I mean, a, a theme running through the book obviously is there aren't that many female butchers around. And one of the reasons for that is butchery is, is predominantly male, has mm. been predominantly male and and is a little bit of a closed shop. Mm, definitely. It's, it's just, it's a boys club. I mean, yeah. I think it's very different in London than it is yeah. a lot of other places. I think bigger cities have a lot more diverse kind of meat culture and, mm. and the meat industry is a lot more diverse in those cities. But... The farm shop that I worked in, all of the men were kind of, well, it, all of the men, all of the butchers, because they yeah. were all men, were kind of 40 to 50. Um, most of them were divorced. Um, most of them had had their own shop before. Right. And they were now working for a corporate, well, I guess it was a corporation, yeah. you could call it, because they were used to be independent businessmen. Yeah, yeah, right. And their grandfathers had been butchers and their great-grandfathers yeah. and their brothers and cousins. And they'd earned this knowledge yeah. from generation to generation to generation so when you want to come in as a young woman who probably would go off to university in a few years and it's just a Saturday job yeah no matter how passionate you try and appear or yeah. you, you try and be to get that knowledge from them it's very difficult yeah and to get them to take you seriously is quite difficult and I think that it was a bit of a slog. Yeah. They were quite mean to you, weren't they? <laughs> they were quite mean, yeah. I mean, was, there's a bit in it where they get you to um, take the bile duct mm. from the chicken livers, yeah. which made me kind of blanch a bit. I was like, oh, because I've done that job and it's, oh, it's horrible. It's so horrible. It's like, without going into too much detail, the bile gland, it's like, 
you know, it's all gross and the green. green and it stains <laughs> your fingers. And there was a, literally a tray, probably about 200 yeah. to 300 of them. Yeah. <laughs> but awful. you're quite stubborn. I think yes. I think that comes through. <laughs> like the more they throw at me, the more I'm not, I'm going to stand here and do it. And I'm going to get so stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so stubborn. I was, I was sat there like they were watching me do it. And I just thought, nope. Absolutely not. You're going to watch me do this and you're going to watch me do every single mm. one. And even, I didn't even want to let it show that I was grossed out. It wasn't until I sat down in my dad's car mm. afterwards and kind of looked at my fingers and they had this grey tinge to them where all of the bile, had, <laughs> oh God, awful, 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 awful. But, but I think that comes through in the book as well as like, is your gradual, like you were saying, that gradual passion that developed in you wanting to learn and it gradually became something that was part of you that never really went away. Because after your Saturday job, you went off to university, mm. didn't you? But then you worked uh, while you were at university, got another job and a bunch yeah, of shop. I did. It was all I'd known, really. Yeah. And still to this day, it's really all I know. Like, it was my first job. I've never had a job outside of the meat industry right. in my life. And that is just insane to think about now um, because it is such a closed industry. Mm. But at that when I moved down to London, it was all I really knew. And yeah. I thought, oh, why not? You know, I enjoyed it before. I, I, I've got some kind of skills. And when I started working um, down in London, the butcheries, were, they, were, they were a different league. Like the right. meat was incredible. Yeah. The actual skill involved, not that the guys up, up in Derbyshire weren't skilled, but no. this was like, you know, everything that, that they were cutting is influenced by what people were asking for and the kind of food that they eat. So they were changing things around. Because mm. I think you you first got into it because you went to Borough Market, didn't you? And suddenly Did. discovered there was this... <laughs> foodie world that's just out of control unbelievable I never really considered myself a foodie yeah. before then and then but my, my family you know we, we love food yeah. my mum and dad I, my mum and dad raised me to eat everything yeah. there's nothing that I won't eat apart from dill I hate oh, the wow. herb dill okay. that's the only one I don't like that's, that's fair enough then we'll give you dill <laughs> Um, but when I moved to London and or when I moved in my second year of uni I moved to Elephant and Castle mm. and just went on a walk and went to Borough Market and and I just was like, this place is incredible. Yeah, it's a bit of a wonderland of food. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. And there was a butcher's there, a ginger pig, who I had kind of watched all the butchers moving around. And again, they were all men. There weren't any women yeah. there either. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm going to ask for a Saturday job. Mm -hmm. You know, I need some extra cash. Student loans at that point weren't great, so, <laughs> especially for London. Yeah. So I just went for it because... Like I said, it was all I knew. Mm. And then I I kind of interviewed and got the, got a Saturday job in the Moxon Street shop and realised that actually I was well out of my depth. Yeah. Considering what I knew and what I thought I could offer, they, the, the the knowledge that they had was just another so world. So you, you felt like you still had a lot of learning to do. Mm, definitely. I wouldn't say I learned much butchery properly at all no. until I started working. Until you started working for them. And then yeah. was that... A bit more of a struggle again, trying to move up to that next stage of. It yeah, I, um, it was. I mean, again, there were some more women who were working there, which was great. Which is and a there bit more was, modern, yeah. yeah, massively. And there was a butcher that I worked with called Erica, who still works there today oh, in cool. the Hackney branch. Yeah. And she was so inspiring to me because I still think she's the best butcher that I've ever seen. Amazing, <laughs> she's incredible. Like, it's just she's got an eye for everything, and it was yeah. just so inspiring to have a woman like that who who was doing what I wanted to do yeah. um but then I got to a point where I was doing my um degree and all of the people who were on my degree were getting jobs in offices and I studied writing and I wanted okay, to so you write. wanted like a grown-up job <laughs> a grown-up job exactly yeah, so I started getting really paranoid and I was like 
you know, is this what I want to do forever? Do I want to be cutting up meat forever? Yeah. Is this what I should be doing? And it just was a, pro- it was a bit of a struggle to figure out what I could do that, you know, I, I wanted to cut meat and I wanted mm. to be behind the counter, but I also wanted to have a grown-up job kind of thing as, as people do. Mm. But I think internally when you do come to terms with that, you realise that actually there's so much more to learn and there's so much yeah, more exactly. fun to be had in a physical job like that. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I think you eventually found a... So, I mean, I know you've, we'll talk about your, the rest of your career in a bit, but you, you eventually found a way to sort of mesh the two together of Thank like you. your knowledge of meat and, and working sort of not always on the counter and stuff. Yeah, I worked, I worked in, I started doing a bit of PR, which was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, lots of social media <laughs> and some PR and like press releases yeah. and stuff. And then... I kind of realised actually that's not really what I want to do. Yeah. So I moved to operations and I was basically working in, in operations for quite a while. And that to me was so came so much more naturally. Because right. Cause you knew, yeah, what you were buying in and organising. and yeah. Exactly. And there was a bit of marketing and a bit yeah. of social media. And, and there was also a bit of working behind yeah. the counter. Yeah. And that's where I feel like people forget that, yeah. that that's an opportunity besides butchery in the meat yeah. industry. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, you talk about um, when you started, you said there weren't a huge amount of female butchers, but you said now you can name 30 off the top of your Mm. head, which is, which is pretty amazing. I mean, it's still not many, but still it's like there are, and and there's some famous ones you talk about. Tell us about some of them. So Charlotte's Butchery from my hometown, Newcastle. Yeah, amazing. Have you been to her butchery? I haven't been, sorry, Charlotte, but I will (laughs) promise to go next time I'm up there. I kind of heard rumours about it, but yeah. She's full on like, She's on, on Instagram, she's even like the girl butcher. Like that oh, is her okay. that's her check that out. brand. Like yeah. that's the that's why she's so powerful because I think she's got her own shop as well. She has, she? Yeah. yeah, Charlotte's Butchery. I can't remember the exact location, but it's in it's around like the Tyne and Newcastle. Yeah. Um but she's just like her whole niche is that she's a woman in the meat mm. industry. And that's just so powerful now because she's obviously she's unique. She mm. she's unique in a way, the the fact that she has built her own career around mm. around just just being a woman in such a male dominated industry, yeah. but also having an incredible talent. Yeah, um, and I think that that's really what helps female butchers now is that we are kind of a niche. Yeah, and it's um, visibility as well. Right? Yeah, you need massively. to see it. Um, and on the other side of the world, I thought um, the white gold butchers in New York, mm. which is Jocelyn Guest and Erica Nakamura. Yes. I went to check out their Instagram. Yeah, they seem to be doing some really cool stuff too. They are. I don't know if they're with White Gold anymore because there was a bit of a controversy around oh. um, April Bloomfield and oh, were they involved in? Yeah, the yeah. So that that was a bit of a hoo ha. So I'm not sure what they're doing now. Yeah. Um, but again, they're just so passionate about the craft and getting other women into the craft yeah. and working with women. Yeah, and. I kind of think sometimes somebody, some people say, well, you know, what's wrong with male butchers? And it's like, I, I, nothing's as wrong. As long as we can both do it, it's fine. Exactly. <laughs> and the, I think the point is, is that there's less women in butchery mm. now. So we need to make it and we, mm. we need to push women to get into this. Yeah. So of course it's going to be a bit unequal that we're like favouring women for a bit because mm. it's been so unequal towards women for the, yeah. rest, for the yeah, centuries ago. So positive ago. discrimination, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it's a good thing for until it, until it levels up. There seems to be like a tipping point in... The whole food industry, restaurant industry, you know, people like ladies of restaurants where oh. everyone's starting to talk about yes. stuff 
you know, like harassment and, you know, being discriminated about and people not getting jobs because they're the women or being pressured with the whole April Broomfield thing. You know, it's it's um, but it seems like it's tipping towards in our favour for a change and that people are talking and the more you talk about it the more it's actually going to change stuff Mm, absolutely ladies of restaurants is so good yeah i love yeah that's a really good instagram to follow as well and really really good and they've got a good website and they do talks and everything so yeah they're so active so active um and they're around the country as well it's not just london i think they're branch outs like manchester and bristol now and edinburgh i think natalia was in edinburgh a few but really what we what we need is for everyone to get on board Mm. and think if you want if you want things to survive, then you have to open it up a bit more, mm. open up those practices, mm. open up to to people coming in, whether they're male, female. Yeah. You know, just I my mum said something really profound to me the other week and she said, How is it that it's in in the home kitchen, it's stereotypically the the woman who should be in the yeah, home kitchen. Yeah. But when it gets to a professional environment, yeah, it's the men. Then it's over. the men. <laughs> and it's just I don't I just it just baffles me it still baffles me to this day um and the female chefs that I know because I've, I've like worked with quite mm. a few chefs male chefs and female chefs and mm. they're a different they're a different breed <laughs> definitely um and yeah, that's the thing because historically women have had to it's like the thing of you have to act like a man mm. to get on yeah and I feel now and and for the future that hopefully women can act like women and and mm. get on and just be be who they are. Just be who yeah, they are. Exactly. Not like mimic some something that you're not, you know, yeah, in order you, to get you on. You don't need to be like angry and and really fired up to no. work in a kitchen. No. I mean, Dodgy Lynn Express in um, Soho is like a perfect example because that's got an all-female kitchen. Or yeah. used to. Oh, that's a summer, isn't it? Yeah, yes. she's, she's been an olive. She's brilliant. She's yeah. amazing. Must, like, must get her on the podcast oh, as well. Yes, definitely do. I mean, I love that it's an yeah. all-female kitchen. And I remember... Like sat myself on the risk because I went in there. I was like, "Oh my god, mm. there's only women in the kitchen." Yeah. Why? Why am I shocked at that? Shocked about it? Why? Yeah. After eleven years as a woman yeah. in a male industry, why am I bothered? But you do say in your book as well a couple of times that you feel like from watching um, a lot of female butchers that you feel like they approach it differently as mm. well, and they've got a lighter touch. Yeah, I think definitely a lighter touch. I also think that it, it's a an appreciation of, especially in this kind of climate, mm. where your meat comes from and the impact of... It's a bit more meat. sensitive. Mm, yeah. Definitely sensitivity. Definitely. That's a, that's a really good word for yeah. it, I think. And an awareness as well. Yeah. Um, and I just think that besides the physical aspect of butchery, mm. I think women just have just... They can look at a piece of meat and go, okay, that used to be an animal. I used to be part of an animal. Let's respect this and let's treat it with the utmost respect as we can. And also teach the customers that we are serving to respect it too. Yeah. I think that's so important nowadays. Yeah, it really definitely. is. I know. I wanted to talk to you about that because um, there's, there's. I mean, God, you don't pull any punches in the book. I was really, I was like, Phew, she's really honest. And um, But as a, as someone who's been a butcher, you're, you're kind of thrown out some quite distressing figures about the meat industry. Mm. So there's a bit where you talk about you know, climate change being affected by the sort of factory farming industry. Yes. And there was this horrific um, statistic, which is which is last year, or was the year before, 570,000 tonnes of meat went to waste mm. because of overproduction. Yes. 
Which is disgusting, it's, right? It's absolutely I mean, it's obscene when people is, are dying of on, course. from not being able to eat. Mm. Um, and that's because there's no cap on... Yeah. No, on the industry there's no legislation to say you you can't overproduce no there's there's a very kind of there's like a guideline but it's not enforced no. and one is there's another statistic that when I read the book I just thought this was just insane I think it's the there was an agreement um at a climate summit a few years back yeah that some of the biggest emission uh, kind of companies in the world that send out carbon emissions yeah would be regulated and one of them was in Australia and it's um, a company with the largest cattle herd in the whole world. And they have something like a million cattle, two wow. million. It's absolutely insane. And the carbon emissions they put out just from rearing their cattle is just unbelievable. Mm. And the this climate change kind of summit and the the board that came together was supposed to regulate the the amount of emissions that they were mm. producing and they're supposed to cap it as well. And... Somebody did a little investigation into how long it took them to actually investigate this company. Five years later, they hadn't done anything. They were just producing as much as they did yeah. before. And it's just, it's there's in, it's insane. There's no regulation. No. There's no legislation. I don't think anyone is listening to vegans, to vegetarians, to pescatarians. I don't think anyone's listening to mm. scientists yeah. Either. Because people are people are eating less meat and yet mm. the companies are still producing the meat. Exactly. So the meat gets wasted. So exactly. I mean it, so I guess legislation it needs to come from government level. Mm. Otherwise it's not gonna happen. I completely basically. agree. Yeah. But then you get to a point it's kind of like the legislation comes from government level, but who is the government to tell the public how much meat they should yeah. be eating? And and yeah. it's just such a tricky It's tricky. Minefield. It's tricky, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's there's other things. Um Another thing I found really fascinating was when you were talking about that a lot of butchers um, pride themselves on being able to supply rare breed meat, mm. except that they literally can't do it. Because <laughs> yeah. do you want, can you explain it? Because it's yeah. quite a fascinating little trail so, about how it happens. Yeah. So, I mean, with the with the trend of consumers wanting to know exactly where their meat came yeah, from. Provenance. and yeah. yeah. Especially after the horse meat scandal. Yeah. People went back to the high street and they went back to their local butchers. Yeah. And normally local butchers would deal in kind of British rare and native breeds. Mm. So things like Hereford cattle, Dexter cattle, mm. um, cattle like Charolais and Limousin there, they normally would come in industrial farming. They're, they're a European breed. Right. So you'd be dealing with normally British breeds. But the, unfortunately what's happening now is that so many people are going back to the high street to ask for rare and native breeds that they're not rare or native anymore okay. because butchers can't keep up with the demand yeah so rare breeds obviously they're rare for a reason yeah there's only, there's so, only so much you can get yeah but when we start to breed them in larger numbers which is great because obviously we want to kind of bump up the population mm. when you start to breed them in larger numbers they're no longer rare breeds which is absolutely fine they become native breeds mm. then you only get a certain number of native breed cattle and obviously with the consumer culture that we have now we have people who go into a butcher shop and they want, I don't know, let's say they want eight ribeye steaks, yeah. 250 grams each. That's half of what you get on a cow. Yeah. It's just gone in one go. And you only get two of those. So you get probably about four kilos of ribeye. Yeah. If two people come in and buy eight steaks each, that's the whole carcass gone. So what's happening now is that butchers in the UK will buy in the most popular parts like ribeye and sirloin and rump. To kind of keep up with the demand but unfortunately because they can't get it from rare breed cattle or mm. native breed cattle they have to buy it in from processing plants okay 
So what you're getting actually is you're getting a lot of butchery who are saying, oh, this is definitely from a British breed. Might not be a native breed. Right. It might be a Charolais or a Limousin cow that's been bred in the UK. Mm. But it's not a rare breed because okay. people are looking for the flavour profiles of like rare breeds and things like that. And they want to support local farmers. But, but, it, but that's not helping <laughs> no. the industry. The carcass balance is what, what we call carcass balance is completely off. So mm. what really should be happening yeah. is that you'd get in a uh, Hills and Stock in uh in Broadway Market do this really, really well. Okay. So they kind of drew a picture and they put it on their Instagram and on the website of what a cow would look like if it catered to consumers. Oh, yeah. And it had something like five tails, it had <laughs> tiny little legs, it had a tiny, <laughs> tiny neck, and it had its back was Absolutely, it's probably like five times the size because it should be. Because that's the cut that they wanted. Because that's all where the, that's all where all the steak is. Yeah. What should actually be happening is butchery should be buying in whole carcasses. Yeah. And if somebody comes in and says, "I'd like a ribeye steak," and they don't have it, you can say, "I'm really sorry, we don't have this." But you can have. Why don't you try something a little bit different? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people come in for the prime cuts, and they want the prime cuts, but they get annoyed when they can't have them. Mm. But then, it, what we need to realize as consumers is that. We can't sustain having the prime cuts no. all the time. Because you have to like swap it out a bit. Exactly. Yeah. It's not good for us. And there's other things on the carcass, other cuts on the carcass yeah. that are as good. It's just because you don't recognize the name, yeah. you don't want to eat it. So it's more awareness as well, isn't mm, it? Really? Definitely. Yeah. And so that's, it's just a, it's a silly know, cycle, and, and um, it, unfortunately. Yeah. And and I guess, yeah, the answer is is diversity and education again. Definitely. And I think there needs to be some kind of realisation in British butchery, especially, that mm. you don't need to keep buying in extras to cater for your customers. No. I mean, I worked for a butchery once who, they used to sell short ribs. Right. And honestly, they used to sell 60, 80 kilos of them a week. Wow. Was that to the public or to restaurants? To the public. Really? With yeah. Like the whole Korean yeah ballistic and, and everyone started buying and barbecue as well barbecue of Korean cut short ribs yeah. are delicious yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those people now yeah. um but I mean short ribs really on a carcass you probably only get about four to seven kilos maybe something okay. like that it's nothing it's not enough no it's not enough but this buttery was selling 80 kilos a week wow you know? and a lot of butcheries in London will do as well because it's such a popular cut mm. um and unfortunately, whole carcass butchery, as much as it's sustainable and as much as it's important to switch to, it's, it's not profitable. You can't really make a profit from it, mm. really. So we're at this weird kind of time where we have to figure out how we can continue at the rate that we are doing mm. and still be profitable and still kind of grow and expand and educate, but also be sustainable. Yeah. And it, at the minute, it doesn't work. Yeah, there seems to be an imbalance between... For example, what you're saying, like there's so much skill in butchery. Mm. And if it, if we were just relying on our local butcher shops, then that'd be fine. But we're not. We're going to supermarkets and we're buying stuff that's just been shipped in from mm. God knows where. Exactly. And, you know, there's good meat there as well. But but it's, it's the sheer volume of the meat mm. and the fact that all that waste happens too. So there's mm. got to be some kind of redressing of the balance yeah. and not losing the skill at the same time because I love watching a butcher work I mean That's it's just amazing. the most fascinating thing to ask them to do something mm. for you and then just watch them get their knives mm. out and go at you know it's, it's really it is it, yeah. it's incredible and it is you're completely right it's a skill it's an art form and I think what's really interesting is that supermarkets have cottoned onto that as well because mm. they brought the butchery, butchery back, back in, in which is great you which know? is fantastic yeah. 
But obviously, since the horse meat scandal and since people wanted to know, they need a face. Yeah. People need to be <laughs> to like, can I have you. this? Yeah, they, they can't. A lot of people won't just pick any packets up now, which is great. No. But then you've got such a vast majority of the population yeah. who will. Um, and unfortunately, mm. cheap meat is so readily available to us. And it's in such huge quantities mm. that we just pick it up off the shelf. We, we not pan think about it. it. We don't have to think about no, it. No, no. So it's, it's a really weird time. Stick around to hear more from Jess about the fascinating world of butchery. What do you think the kind of trends are at the minute? What are you, what are you seeing happening in? Do you, I mean, I've heard a lot about seam butchery, which is... Yes. That's where you literally take... So um, you, you can describe it better than me. You describe it. <laughs> um, so every muscle has a seam. Yeah. And what a seam is, is a very thin layer of silver skin over the muscle, which will separate it from another one. And especially on the continent, seam buttery is really, really massive. It's where instead of separating the carcasses we would do in a British buttery, Mm. they'd go along the seams. And that would basically, you're left with so many more muscles because, uh, for example, the rump. Yeah, we have the rump steak. We cut normally cut the rump as a whole. Seam buttery would probably separate that into two or three different muscles. So you've got the picanha. Are the picanhas is, that really famous? They use it in South America, don't yes, they? Yeah. Massively famous. Um, and then that sits on top of the rump. So oh, that would be separated yeah. from the rump. And then you'd also have like a top sailing, which would be separated. Oh, so there's all these different kind of, basically it's kind of like you're getting a lot more for your money really yeah. because instead of, you've got like a shin, a shin of beef and that can be separated into two, three, mm. four muscles instead of just one big one. So you've got so much more to work with. And also you don't have to use a knife very often. Oh, you can just yeah. kind of separate it. You use yeah. your hands and just go along the seam. You can just pull it apart. You yeah. use your knife just to loosen it up. Yeah. Um, but seam buttery, yeah. I mean, that's it's so fascinating because the amount of knowledge you have to have. To do that, yeah. It would crazy. be like a, a, one of those... Um, see those pictures of you know humans with their like skin off with all of the muscle <laughs> yes. groups or like exactly one of them it. and that's how you'd and I think <laughs> the beauty of that is um that you like uh for example a t-bone steak's got two separate two separate bits of muscle on yes. it hasn't it so they cook at different temperatures yes so actually exactly. in seam butchery whenever you're cooking that bit of meat it should cook perfectly all the yeah, way through completely so that's quite fascinating any other sort of trends that you see at the minute? um with butchery to be honest sustainability yeah i know we keep talking about sustainability no, no, God, but it's, it's like number one subject huge i think that like hills and stock that i mentioned earlier mm. they are actually going into whole carcass butchery now which is huge. And I think the butchery by Nathan Mills, who are in Spitalfields and Bermondsey, oh, cool. they're also doing whole carcass, yeah. which is pretty unheard of, to yeah. be honest. I think other so butcheries... does that mean they will not buy, they won't box no. buy anything? Everything is bought in whole carcass and they'll just yeah. use it in some way? Yeah. If you go into there, I, I popped into the butchery at Spitalfields through the week yeah. and I didn't buy anything. I was just looking. But all the meat is dry aged and it's dry so beautifully. Mm. And you can tell it's come off a whole carcass because all the meat's the same colour. Mm. So it's all been dry aged for the same amount of time. And I went in and they had loads of gaps in the counter. And normally as a consumer, I'd be like, oh, there's nothing left. But yeah. in actual fact, if you look at it from a different way, you're like, actually, they haven't got a lot left because they don't have enough to yeah. sell. And I think that they'll buy in some ribs. Yeah. But I know for a fact everything that he gets is Nathan Mills, that he gets is certified. Amazing. Um, and it comes with a certificate of where it came from and the, yeah. who the farmer was and who his, you know, who his grandma was and all yeah. that kind of thing. So, Can you explain dry aging? Yeah. 
Is that Love my favourite so yeah. <laughs> um, So the way I, the best way to envisage dry aging mm. is a glass of squash. Okay. So the more concentrated squash you have in it, yeah, the more the flavour. Yeah. The more water in, the less the flavour. Okay. So what happens after um, slaughter? Normally a, a cow's body. It's normally cows that we dry age, but people are moving it into lamb and oh, okay. pork and everything like that. But a body of beef will probably be about 75% water, something like that. Um, and what will happen is it'll get cut into forequarter and hindquarter, mm. and then it'll get shipped off to a butcher's who will cut it into your brisket, they'll cut it into your shin, they'll cut it into your rib. Mm. Um, and normally what will happen is everything will get taken off the bone and it'll get sold if you're not going to dry age. Mm. If you are going to dry age, you take the good bits like the steak and you would hang them up in a fridge that has a specific humidity setting. Right. And I can't for the life of me, and it's completely escaped so me the worry. percentage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you put it in a humidified fridge yeah. at around about 45 degrees. Um, and what will happen is you'll leave it there. Just leave it there for about, normally about three to four weeks okay. is kind of the minimum. Yeah. And what will start to happen is water will evaporate out of the beef and it will start to mold on the outside. Okay. And all that means is that the water's escaping and it's just becoming quite dry and hard mm. on the outside. But when you cut into the inside, it's kind of like it's lost that springiness that you would okay. get with bright coloured, yeah. really the fresh bright, beef. Yeah. And it's got kind of like a nice softness to it. And yeah. basically all it means is that the flavour is massively intensified. Intensified because the water, you've just lost water. Yeah. And is that, that mould isn't horrible mould. No. no. It's, it's, <laughs> it's called it's mould, mold. but it's like, but it is mould. <laughs> What, do, they do, do they just cut that off? They just cut that off, yeah. yeah. I, I know quite a few butchers who will sell it to chefs and they make kind of, not um, not with the actual mould, but with kind of the, the, the darker bits on the outside that yeah. you can't use. Yeah, yeah. Normally what will happen, the mould, mould is the sign of something that's too, that this um, fridge is a bit too humid. Oh, I see, right. So there will be a bit of mould, but it, it should just kind of go black and very hard. But yeah. what will happen is you'll cut that bit off the outside um, and a lot of chefs will use it to make gravies. They'll use it to because it's just so intensified. Yeah, I mean, I've massively. been into because we're we're just down the road from HG Walter, oh, who I love because we get all of, we get all of our meat from them they're whenever incredible. we're doing anything. I love those guys, <laughs> and they've got the most beautiful aging fridge mm. that's exposed in the back of the shop, so you can see. And when you look at it, like you know, a normal person who wasn't really into their meat might think, "Oh, it looks a bit all scrolled up and." black and shriveled <laughs> but actually you just know that that's going to have incredible flavor as well amazing and the and the fat kind of goes a bit nutty and yeah. a bit creamy it's ugh, I always go for a dry age steak i think if you and some people take them quite far don't they yeah. i think you said that you know this it's like i think 28 days is like the thing that you see a lot of mm. even in supermarkets mm. but then beyond that it's I mean, you can go anywhere up to 365 if can you wanted you? to. I know. Have you tried that? Does no. it get a bit cheesy? I think for me, <laughs> 55 yeah. is max. So right. things like a rump steak, because the muscle's a bit tougher, because yeah. it's worked a lot more, you can dry age that anywhere up to kind of 55 to 70 days. And will it stop breaking the muscle down yeah. as well? So it'll be more tender. So much nice. more tender. Whereas yeah. when you get something like a ribeye, because it's so fatty and you don't want the fat to go too cheesy. Yeah. Probably <laughs> so um, about thirty-five days. <laughs> I've done. I've had. Yeah, I've had a seventy-five. Yeah, that nah, was too much for me. It, it was just like it, it was such a big piece when it yeah. started, and then it just shrinks so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this tiny little steak, and I had it, and it it was just very, very strong. 
yes. changes the flavor profile completely. It doesn't, people always say, oh, it tastes exactly like beef should do. It's like, is that what, have we missed something? Like, because yeah. normally what should beef taste like? I know, exactly. It's like, what have what you been chewing <laughs> what on? What have we been missing? I think that's why I'm, I'm always a bit wary to kind of, you know, get steak when I'm out, unless mm. I'm somewhere that where I know they're absolutely yeah. going to nail it. Because I just think I don't want to be just chewing on a bit yeah. of muscle that tastes of nothing. Whereas when you get an incredible steak, when you just get when you you know mm. instantly, it's like zing. I completely Lovely. agree. Yeah. I never ever 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 have steak out ever because yeah. I don't I don't and also not to diss any steak restaurants or anything, but when you buy a steak for a tenner from like the butcher shop and yeah. they slap another 40, 50 quid on it when you're out there just yeah. for cooking it. It's a bit... Mm. <laughs> so you think, do you think make friends with your butcher? I also yes. make friends. I've got a little local butcher and crack chained. Bless them, Morley's. I love them. <gasps> and they're all about... Um, they must... Sorry, guys, I forgot your name. Your age is wrong. They won't be listening to this. But I swear they're in the 70s. <laughs> and I go in and I'm all like, hi. That's so cute. so and so? And they're like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with that? And I'll tell them and they'll go... Oh yeah! Like oh God, <laughs> I work for a food magazine. I know what That's I'm doing. So Come classy. on! But I love. But I I also love them, you know. And I mm. worry that they are looking older and older. And I worry that there's no one young in that shop. Oh no! You know, I know. See, that's the thing, isn't it? I know, and I want yeah, and I don't want that to go out. You know, I don't want that that whole like high street butcher to mm. go out of business because they've got so much knowledge. Like you Massively. said, really good. And I think so. I think you know, people listening do make friends with your butchers. Um, yes. But anyway, what what's next for you, Jess? What's, oh what's going on? So... <laughs> I mean, the book. I have to say to everyone. <laughs> The book um, is absolutely brilliant. It's so like the coming of age story that the stories of, you know, you you um, struggling your way through, um, you know, you've had a few dodge experiences. There's some um, you, you're really you're brutally truthful in the, in the book. And um, and like I'm always rooting for you all the way. Oh, through. thank you. Um, but, really I, but I learned so much as well. Oh, and there's so great. much passion comes through in it that, you know, I think it's a, it's a great you. week. Bye for Christmas, everyone. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. So what are you going to do next? Um, so at the minute, I'm just trying to figure out what to do, mm. because obviously I've got and it's in the book and all the kind of articles and stuff that I've done since the book. Mm. I don't know where buttery stands right now in this yeah. climate. Yeah, you can tell that at the end you're having a bit of a, you know. It's, it's an internal yeah. kind of pull. Yeah. I don't know what to do and I'm not sure how to carry on. Mm. So at the minute, I'm figuring that out. Yeah. Um, trying you're to... still young. Yes. No, <laughs> still very young. Yeah. Um, uh, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. I think I probably will. But we've actually just sold it to a TV production company. Amazing. Oh so, yeah, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But I think... If you're not, tell me. Okay. But yeah, we've just signed it to oh, a TV I'm production so thrilled company. thrilled for you. That's so really brilliant. that's surreal yeah and I've not quite got over that just yet um so we'll see what happens with that and then like I said just trying to figure out what's next Mm. and trying to do a lot of talking to people and trying to talk as much about the meat industry as we can and cook loads so yeah and keep writing because you're really a recipe book would you Mm. I think I'd like to do that but we'll see (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for coming to talk to us today Um, so the book is called girl on the block a true story of coming of age behind the counter by jessica rag also known as jess and um it's out now to buy and hold back so yeah Yeah. nice christmas present but thank you very much jess thank you so much for having me it's been lovely so that was the old magazine podcast if you like this episode please review and rate us we'd love to hear from you 
If you'd like to find out more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can pick up a copy of our brand new bumper Christmas issue on the newsstand now, or go and download the app version. Bye for now, and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chart.